Hey, I've been reading the C.S. Lewis children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, with my daughters over the last few months. And uh, it's a seven-book series that culminates uh, in a book called The Last Battle, which hopefully my daughters and I will finish in the next day or two. I mean, we've, it's a long journey, but we're finishing The Chronicles of Narnia. And my favorite book in the whole series uh, is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you've ever read The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a special one. Uh, it's, a, it's my favorite, but Silverchair is a very close second because Puddleglum is such a great character. For those of you who've read the novels, you know. But in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in the final scene, after a long and difficult adventure where the protagonists have fought all sorts of crazy, you know, dragons and bad guys and all of this, the three, at the end of this adventure, the three protagonists, which are three children, <clears throat> Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace, they arrive at the shores of Aslan's country. And there to greet them on the shores is a white and pure, innocent lamb. And when they get to the shore in their boat, they paddle up to it, and the lamb is there, and the lamb is cooking breakfast for the kids. And they start a conversation with the lamb. This lamb is so welcoming and inviting. And they start a conversation with the lamb about how they can enter in to Aslan's country, which is uh, essentially the Narnian fictional version of what we would call heaven. You see, the Chronicles of Narnia is a Christian allegory. And as the lamb begins to explain how one can enter into Aslan's country, something magical starts to happen. The lamb begins to change shape. The lamb begins to grow very large. And the white fur, the, the white uh, begins to turn golden brown. And the lamb, right before their eyes, becomes a lion. Not just any lion, but Aslan the lion, the creator and the king of the land of Narnia. And it's this beautiful image at the end of this book this tender lamb welcomes the children with breakfast. But then as he talks, the lamb becomes a lion that demands their reverence and their respect and even a little bit of fear. And the children bow before King Aslan the lion. And all throughout the novels, Aslan is, is seen as, I mean, he's the king, he's the creator, he's the Christ figure in Narnia. And one of the themes that comes up over and over again is what kind of lion is he? And when, uh, in, the, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver is asked, well, is he a tame lion? And Mr. Beaver says, oh, good heavens, no, he's not a tame lion. He's good, but he's not tame. And this is a picture of who Jesus is. The scriptures call Jesus a lamb. We've studied this as we've been studying the gospel of John. Jesus is, we just sang about it. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's tender, he's gentle, he's lowly, he's pure, he's welcoming. He cooks breakfast for us. But Jesus also, the scriptures say, is a lion. He's fierce, he's unpredictable. He's worthy of honor and reverence and respect and even a little bit of fear. Jesus is good. He's a good king. But who said anything about tame? You see, today's passage is an example of this. Jesus is good, but he is unpredictable, and he is fierce, and he is not tame. As we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, we find ourselves today in John chapter 2, verse 13. 
Look what it says. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And Jesus, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples in that moment remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So this story begins, this is a story of Jesus flipping over tables. And the story begins that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem to the temple. And the only way that we can understand the significance of this story is if we first understand the significance of both the Passover and the significance of the temple. You see, Passover was a Jewish holiday, and the purpose of Passover was to remind the Jewish people of how God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. So if you remember a couple of years ago, we studied through the book of Exodus. And in that study, we saw that God delivered the people of Israel by commanding them to sacrifice an innocent lamb and then cover their doorposts with the blood of that lamb. And then when God sent an angel of death over Egypt, it hovered over Egypt, but those whose homes were covered in the blood of the lamb Death passed over those homes. That's why it's called the Passover. So Passover, they they were told to celebrate this. And the the Jewish people have been celebrating this at this point for thousands of years. And it was the purpose of it was for them to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness in providing a lamb who died in their place so that they could be delivered and so that they could be free. And the way they celebrated Passover each year is that they would bring, uh, each person would bring, each family would bring an innocent animal a lamb, a goat, or if you were poor, they made provisions for you to bring a pigeon. And you would sacrifice, you would come to Jerusalem and you would sacrifice that animal in the temple. And that ritual was to show people the cost of forgiveness and deliverance and remind them of how God had delivered them out of slavery. And they did this at the temple. So that's Passover, and they did this at the temple. And what is the temple? If you study the Old Testament, you'll see that the temple is the place where God's presence dwelled. This was a sacred place. This was a holy place. When you were in the temple courts, you were in the very presence of God himself. And Passover, you have to understand, it was a big deal. Every Jewish person within traveling distance would come to Jerusalem at Passover. So the population of Jerusalem would increase three, four, five, maybe even six times during Passover. And if you've ever been to the old city of Jerusalem, some of you in our church have been with me to see the old city of Jerusalem, you know it's not a very large city. I mean, the, the, it's not a very big city. It's about the size of Bay Ridge. And back in Jesus' day, it was even smaller than it is today. And you probably had somewhere between two and three million people in the city of Jerusalem at Passover. So, I mean, this feels like Times Square on New Year's Eve 2019, you know, (laughs) before the pandemic. I mean, it's packed. It's packed, and there's all this commotion, movement, and Jesus and his disciples, they were among this crowd of people. 
The text says that Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. They're working their way through the crowd. They get to the temple, and this is where everybody was, this sacred, holy place. There's all these people there. And the first thing Jesus sees when he gets to the temple are vendors selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, and then he sees some money changers. In the moment Jesus sees this, we get the sense that Jesus becomes furious. And he goes and finds some cords. Perhaps it says he made a whip of cords. I don't know if that's weeds or reeds or rope or whatever, but he fashions a whip. I mean, he's Indiana Jones right now. And then he goes ballistic. He lowers the boom, so to speak. Verse 15 says he drove them all out of the temple. I mean, I mean, packed house. I mean, thousands upon thousands of people. He drives them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And then we see that he started screaming at the vendors. He said, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. Essentially what he says is, what are you doing? You've turned my father's house, the temple, the place where my father dwelt, you've turned it into a shopping mall. Get out, he says. And he drives them all away. And the people in this moment, you imagine, they are just scattering in fear. Like, what is going on? This guy's flipping over tables. He's, animals are going crazy. There's coins clanking and rolling around all over the stone floor, the, the stone uh, uh, streets from where Jesus has flipped over the table. You know, we love Jesus meek and mild, don't we? But this is Jesus angry and wild. This isn't gentle lamb, Jesus. This isn't behold the lamb. This is behold the lion. And he's not a tame lion. And the question we have to ask then as we read this is, why? Why was Jesus so angry? And why, like, we don't expect Jesus to act this way. What caused him to get so angry? And by the way, anger is not a sin. If you say, oh, you know, if you say, Wait, Jesus is angry, I thought Jesus was sinless. The scriptures say, be angry, but do not sin. There is a way for your anger to become sin. You can, your anger can manifest itself in sinful ways, but there's a way to be angry in a way that's righteous. And Jesus is angry in a righteous way right here. But what caused Jesus to be so angry? Well, I think there's a variety of things that were happening all at once that added up to really make Jesus angry. I mean, we sort of see what, he, what makes him angry when he says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. So imagine for a moment that you live outside Jerusalem. Say you live in Cana or Nazareth. We've been talking about Cana and Nazareth in the last couple of chapters of this gospel. This is where Jesus and his disciples were coming from. I looked it up on Google Maps this week. The walking route from Cana to uh, Jerusalem is about 90 miles. So, you know, this is probably a week-long journey or so, depending on if you're an ultra run, ultra marathon runner or what, but it's gonna take you at least a half week to a week. So this is a long journey. But you also think, okay, it's Passover, so you've got to bring an animal to sacrifice. I, I, I don't know about you, but carrying a lamb, I don't think a lamb is going to walk 90 miles over rocky terrain and in hot you know, weather. You're probably going to have to pick that lamb up, and you're going to have to carry it for 90 miles. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? And I mean, that's a bit of a task. It probably, you're, you're carrying it most of the way. It's exhausting. 
And you know, the, the, the hardest part about it is if you carry a lamb, you guys ever played with, seen like lambs at the zoo, Prospect Park Zoo or anything? Lambs are sweet. And if I carried a lamb for a week, I would probably grow attached to it, wouldn't you? Like you'd be like, oh, this sweet lamb, you'd probably name it, you know? And, and you're like, you fall, and then, so then the thought of sacrificing it when you get to Jerusalem becomes emotionally difficult. You're like, I mean, I don't want to, this, this is a sweet animal. Like I fed it, I, mean, I gave it a name, you know, it's, it, I, I, and you arrive in Jerusalem, you're tired from your journey, you're tired from carrying this lamb this whole way, you're a little sad that you've got to kill your beloved lamb. This is a difficult situation. Well, some people in Jerusalem saw this as a business opportunity. They said, oh, this is, we got an opportunity. So vendors began selling animals in the temple court, and their sales pitch was this. You don't have to bring your own animal. You don't have to carry it all this way. That is way too much work. That's too inconvenient. You can get to Jerusalem, and you can buy an animal from us. We've got oxen. We've got sheep. We've got pigeons. Come on down, you know. And of course, they can charge whatever they want, right? So if you get there without an animal, but you gotta, you've got to have an animal to go into the temple to sacrifice for your sins, they can charge whatever they want, and they did. And so you have people charging exorbitant prices, ripping people off in the name of God, in the name of worship. But you also have the money changers, and these are the, these are the worst. Because you can't buy something in the temple with currency from wherever you came from. You need to get your currency converted. If you ever traveled to another country, when you get to the airport, they've got the currency conversion. You, you, you give them your money and they convert it. Well, but the money changers in Jerusalem, they, had, they were scamming. They were hucksters. And they were, they were tacking on an outrageous conversion fee. Some scholars say that, to, that in order to, uh, to convert two shekels would likely cost a day's wage. I mean, this is absurd. This is worse than Ticketmaster. You guys know what I mean? You're like, oh, the ticket to that concert is only 30 bucks. Great, I can afford that. And when you add it to your cart, you finally check out. It's like $190 to go to this concert. What? And it's like, oh, you, char you charge me 120 bucks in service charges. That's frustrating. And you think that's bad, but this is way worse because these hucksters and these scammers, they're not just profiting off you because you want to go to a concert. They're profiting off of people who are going to the temple to worship. They're profiting off of God's name. They're using people's desire to worship God as a way to profit off of them. That is sick. That is sick. And this is exactly what the third commandment is talking about when it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. I mean, these people are using the name of the Lord to enrich themselves, and they're breaking the third commandment, and Jesus becomes furious. And so... But I also think there's another reason why Jesus was angry. And, you know, people always love to point out the scammers and the hucksters, and that made Jesus mad. You know it did. But it's easy. We hear that, and we're like, we think of the TV preachers who are ripping people off and all that stuff, and, we, and then we take ourselves out of it. You're like, man, that's for, this passage is for the bad guys. But I, we also get the sense that Jesus is angry not just with the scammers, but he's angry with the people being scammed as well. Why? because they're willingly taking part in it. They could have brought their own lamb with them. Yes, it would have been more inconvenient. Yes, it would have been difficult, but isn't, don't you think that may be the point? To bring a lamb with you, to travel with that lamb, to feed it, to, caring, to care for it, knowing that it would die in your place. That difficulty is supposed to stir in you a hatred for sin because you go, my sin cost this. It's going to cost this lamb its life. 
And maybe the point of the journey was to remind you how heavy the weight of your sin truly is and how unbelievable an act of mercy it was that God delivered them from Egypt through the blood of a lamb. I think of Abraham journeying up the mountain with his son Isaac. That was a painful journey, and the journey itself was a time where he had a conversation with God. You see, the journey itself, I believe, was there to remind them the cost it takes to deliver them from their sin. But these worshipers, they chose the convenient route. It's it's too difficult to carry my own animal. I'll just purchase one. It's like a shopping list. I'll just grab one on the way into the temple. They chose the convenient route, and they approached their worship as a transaction. Got to go to Passover. Oh, I'll pick up my sacrifice on the way in. You see, from top to bottom that day, what was going on in the temple courts had nothing to do with, worship, with worshiping the living God who had delivered them out of slavery and out of bondage. It had nothing to do with remembering this God. It was hollow worship. It was going through the religious motions, checking the religious boxes in a way that demanded the least amount of hassle for them. And Jesus flipped out. Verse 18 The story goes on, it says, So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews said, What? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture the word that Jesus had spoken. So here's what happens here. Jesus, after the coins are settled down on the ground and after everybody, the shock of all this kind of, people are like, what just happened? All these people look at Jesus and if you notice, with all the details that we have, no one really responds to Jesus while he's flipping over tables and cracking a whip. No one says, no one fights back. No one says, hey Jesus, stop doing that. Nobody says, hey, Jesus, you shouldn't be flipping tables. Who do you think you are? I remember when I was in high school, I had a teacher that I really loved. His name was Coach Page. And he he was the coach of the JV girls basketball team and was just the best guy. And he taught science class and always encouraging, always supportive, always funny. And I would always come to class early so that I could, I could hang out with Coach Page before class. And, and we would joke with each other. And one day, I got a little too comfortable with Coach Page, and I called him by his first name. I said, I said, Harvey. And he slammed his hand down on the table. And he pointed his finger in my face. And he said, Will McGee, never again. And I could have said, hey, coach, chill out, man, relax. I didn't mean anything. But what do you think I did? I took it. You know what I mean? I took because I, I remained silent. Because I knew that in that moment I had crossed the line. I was in his classroom. And he was the authority. And I was the student. And he was not Harvey. I did not have the right to call him that. He was Coach Page or Mr. Page and Coach Page and Mr. Page only. And I crossed the line. And I think here in this story, nobody rebukes Jesus because they had a sense that Jesus had some authority. Jesus even said so. He says, this is my father's house. This was Jesus' territory, and they were defiling it. And they had a sense. They didn't know fully, but I think they had a sense that Jesus was coming in flipping over tables because 
Something about Jesus, the way he carried himself, gave the impression that he wasn't just some other person in the temple. This was his father's house. And they said, well, 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 Jesus, show us a sign for why you've done this. Jesus says, you want a sign? I'm going to tear down this temple. I'm going to rebuild it again in three days. And then you're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, John actually gives us the key. He says, but Jesus wasn't, it's like a narrator. It's like, but Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about himself. He was referring to his death and his resurrection. You see, I said earlier, what is the temple? The temple is where God meets man. The temple is the place where God dwells among us. And so when God puts on human flesh and comes to earth as Jesus, where's the temple really? Jesus is the temple. Because Jesus is the presence of God walking among them. And Jesus is saying to them, look, I'm the real temple. I'm the presence of God among you. And he tells them in coded language, he says, I'm going to be destroyed. I'm going to die for you. Like the lambs that are being killed today for your sins, I will be killed for your sins. But I will rise from the grave three days later and give you a greater deliverance than you ever experienced in Egypt. I will deliver you not just from slavery and bondage, but I will deliver you from sin and death itself. Jesus is the true temple. And so that's the story. And you go, okay, good story. You know, entertaining story. But what in the world, what importance does this have for our lives today? I think it's this. And this is one point sermon. What is the purpose of worship? The purpose of worship is to remember what God has done and to enjoy his presence. That's what this passage teaches us. It teaches us what true worship is. True worship is remembering what God has done and enjoying his presence. You see, in this story, we see that there is a type of worship, or perhaps really not at worship, but an anti-worship that people are participating in that not only disappoints Jesus and makes his heart sad, but it actually makes him angry. And by reverse engineering why Jesus is angry, we can actually learn what it is that Jesus really wanted from these people. You see, remember, this, Pass- this was Passover and it was in the temple. What's the purpose of Passover? Passover was to remember God's faithfulness. And what's the purpose of the temple? To enjoy God's presence. But in the temple courts that day, amid all the commotion, no one was really pausing to remember and reflect on God's deliverance at Passover, were they? They were just making transactions. No one was stopping in the temple courts to enjoy God's presence. They were looking. They showed up to Jerusalem a little tired. They're finding their hotel. They got their family they're going to stay with. They're getting all their arrangements, and they say, oh, I got to head to the temple. Got to buy my lamb so I can make my sacrifice, so I can check that off the box, and so I can go have a good dinner with my family tonight. They were running religious errands. That's what they were doing. That's why Jesus says, you've made my father's house a shopping mall. And rather than remembering the deliverance of God and enjoying the presence of God, which is the whole point of why God wanted them to come and and trek to Jerusalem on this day, instead of remembering and enjoying, the people were treating this act of worship like like a chore rather than an opportunity to thank, honor, and enjoy God. And we read this story, and we're mostly in this room, I assume, Protestant 21st century Christians. And we go, I've never sacrificed an animal. We don't have these sort of rituals. What does this have to do with me? We don't do these kind of things. Yes, we do. We just call them spiritual disciplines in our church. 
We call it going to church, going to growth group, serving on a volunteer team, studying our Bibles, praying, taking the bread and the cup of communion on Sundays. These are, all of these things are acts of worship that have purpose to them. It is uh, everything that, that we ask you to do in church or everything that you see in the scriptures commanded of you, the purpose of those things, these acts of worship, is so that you will remember God's faithfulness and enjoy his presence. They are acts of worship. That's why we do these things. But just like the Passover in the temple, the purpose of these things is to point to the work of God in delivering us, which is for us the cross of Christ, not just the Exodus story. And we do these acts of worship to lead us to enjoy the presence of God. But don't we easily forget sometimes? Isn't it easy for us to forget why we do these things and they become chores for us? And they become activities that we do, that we sort of turn off our brains and just do it because that's what we always do. And we do it without thought or with reflection. And these acts of worship can easily, if we're not continually fixing our eyes on Jesus, they can become empty acts of religion, and this angers God. You see, here's what a proper Passover would have looked like for someone in that day. They're traveling for days. They're traveling in the hot, you know, Israel climate, and they've got a sacrificial lamb on their shoulders. And as they travel, they provide for the lamb. They bring food for the lamb. They grow weary as they carry the lamb, as they walk toward Jerusalem. And then they become attached to the lamb. And as they become attached to this lamb, they begin to think, this lamb is so sweet. This lamb is so tender. This lamb has done nothing wrong. Yet when I arrive in Jerusalem and when I enter into the temple, when I enter into God's presence, I'm going to transfer my sin. I'm going to transfer my shortcomings, my guilt, and my shame onto this innocent lamb. And this lamb that has done none of the things that I've done will die for my sins. And imagine the, the, the thoughts that's going through your mind as you're thinking that while you walk. And then this person, they walk into the temple courts and they reflect on the fact. They go, I'm in the temple. This is where God's presence is. And then every time in the, in the scriptures, anytime somebody enters the presence of God, you think they go, hey, I'm in the presence of God. I belong here. No, when you're in the presence of God, you feel small. And you, there's reverence and there's fear and there's honor and there's respect. And there's a sense when you're in the presence of something great, you reflect on how unworthy you are to be there. And they would have walked into the temple and gone, man, I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. My sin, my shame, but yet here I am. And then they go to the priest. They're overwhelmed with their sins. They say, I'm worthy, unworthy to be in the presence of God. But then they take their lamb off their shoulders. And with tears in their eyes, they make the sacrifice. And then the priest looks in their eyes and says, go, your sins are forgiven. And as they walk out of the temple, think about this, they are literally walking out without the load they were carrying in. The weight is lifted off their shoulders, the literal weight of the lamb that was carrying their sin. And they walk out and they go, God has provided a way that I could enter into his presence and have my sin removed. And if you do that properly, you're not going to walk out of there going, oh, I just did a religious checklist thing, and now I'm going to head to dinner. You're going, what? God made a way for my sin to be removed? 
And they walk out of the temple with joy and with hearts filled with gladness and with gratitude for who God is and what he has done. You see, proper worship leads us to joy in God. And Jesus becomes angry at the people this day because he wanted, the reason he was angry is because he wanted them to experience joy. He wasn't angry at them as much as he was angry for them. He's going, you're doing all this religious busy stuff and you're missing the point. I want you to have joy. Pay attention to what you're doing. You're missing it because you're approaching your religion as a checklist. You see, the type of worship God desired for them and the type of worship God desires for you and me is that every act of worship is meant to point you closer to Christ, to heighten your experience of God's presence in your life and to change you from the inside out, not the outside in. This week, I read a memoir by Lecrae Moore. Uh, Lecrae is a Grammy-winning hip-hop artist. And uh, the book is titled, I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith. The subtitle alone is what hooked me. I said, I gotta, I gotta check this out. Well, if you know who Lecrae is, Lecrae is a committed Christian. Um, but he's become very famous, not just in Christian music, Christian rap circles, but he's very well respected in the entire hip-hop community. But in his memoir, he talks about how when he started to become famous for his songs, and the reason he became famous is people were going, whoa, this guy can actually rap. He's actually good, unlike some Christian music. You know what I mean? Like, you're like, this is not as good as the mainstream stuff. But he could actually rap, but he was rapping about, like, deep theology stuff. And people were like, this is amazing. This is incredible. And people started looking at him as a Christian celebrity. And they expected him to know his Bible and to be a role model. And he said, as a young, he was in his 20s when he became famous. He said, I started to feel the pressure to be what everyone expected me to be. He said, so I started reading my Bible not to experience God's presence, but to learn more about it so that I could impress people around me with my knowledge, so that I could find good song lyrics, and so that I could prove to people that I was deserving of the respect and the fame that they had given me. And he said, man, after a few years of this, my faith grew cold. So cold, he said, that I felt distant from God. He developed addictions. And he says he was even tempted at one point to give up on Christianity altogether because he felt so distant from God. But in his book, he tells a story of how his faith in Jesus was restored. Listen to what he says. He says, I started to spend time with God, but in a different way than I had before. My time with God wasn't on the basis of a checking off a devotional or a quiet time. It was just being in God's presence, seeing where he led me instead of trying to steer him somewhere. None of these habits were motivated by a checklist to prove that I completed them. This period of time for me was nothing but sincere intimacy with God, developing a true relationship with the divine. Interestingly, the more time I spent with God, the more I realized that he was never as far away as I thought he was. He felt distant and aloof to me, but when I started to slowly walk back to him, I realized that I was the one that had strayed from him. The heart that had been full of concrete began to soften. No longer was my experience with God about creating rules or following rituals. I just wanted to sit with God and listen to him. I just wanted to read. When I opened my Bible, I wasn't studying for anything. I just read until I was finished. I fell back in love with reading the Bible just to hear the words fall onto the soil of my soul. 
It felt like God was speaking to me again. In the middle of this moment, I found God in a different way. I found him in a place of healing, and it was a deeper place than ever before. You see what Lecrae said, he said, when I stopped approaching these acts of worship in my life as religious to-do checklists, or as a way to impress or please the people around me, he said, when I just opened my Bible to get more of God and forget all the other stuff, he said, I got what I came for. And so as I close out this sermon today, I'm going to give us a way to apply this, okay? Every week we take communion, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. And the purpose of communion is very similar to the purpose of Passover. In fact, Jesus initiated the communion on the night of Passover. God has given us this ritual, this sacrament, for the purpose of greater increasing our gratitude and our enjoyment for who he is. Look at what 1 Corinthians 11 says. It says, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, in the same way, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But then listen to this. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So then let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and, the, and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You know, there's a way that we can do this flippantly and miss the point of it. And there will be judgment for that, it says. I don't know what that looks like. But I don't want any part of that. Instead of judgment, though, what I do is I take the blood, the juice, and I take the bread, the body of Christ, and I go, Jesus, his body was broken and his blood was poured out for me so that the judgment for my sin could be placed on him and not on me and so that I can be free. You see, the purpose of this is not for us to just do something right before we sing the next song. It's, it's to call our attention to what Jesus has done. So when you take the, the, this little cracker, it's a symbol of the body of Christ, which was broken for you on the cross. And, and before you put this in your mouth, it says, don't take this in an unworthy manner, but stop and discern what the body is. Jesus, the sinless lamb, took my shame, Jesus, the true lamb, carried his cross on his shoulders to Calvary. My sin was transferred onto him and he was sacrificed for me. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that my guilt and my shame could be removed and my load could be lightened. And then just like he promised, he was placed in a grave, but three days later he rose again and now death has been defeated. And if you are covered by his blood, just like the Passover, death will now pass over you and you will experience eternal life with God. That's what the body and the blood is. It is to remember that Jesus is the Passover sacrifice that lightens our load and ushers us into the very presence of God. So let's not take this lightly today. Let's do this with grateful hearts for what Jesus has done and what he has accomplished. Let me pray for you, church. God, thank you for the cross of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus who gave his body and his blood so that we could be restored, our sins could be forgiven, and we can have eternal life. So we take this, God, in remembrance of you. And it's in your name we pray.
Amen. Whenever you're ready, you can take the body and the blood, and then you can sing with us.